The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. If you were here last week, um, uh, Caleb opened up his sermon by saying that everyone is a perfect parent until they have children. And that is funny, but that's, that's also very true. And I've uh, definitely found that to be the case. And I think Charmaine uh, would agree with that as well. And we realize that we are imperfect uh, people, that we're, that we're sinners, and, um, and that we, we have many expectations um, that we, that we you know, constantly fail. But, but thankfully, we serve a, a perfect God. And, and, and he meets us, and uh, he, he provides for us. And we come and ask of God you know, many things. And, uh, parenting Zoe you know we ask that uh, he gives us patience and he he gives that every day we ask that he gives us understanding and he gives that uh, we ask that he gives us guidance and how to uh, shepherd her how to how to guide her and uh, how to disciple her and he constantly does that and there's something else that we've we've asked of God that he would that he would add to our family and he's given that as well <laughs> so so this um yeah so so this january early january god willing uh we'll be welcoming a new member to our family a baby girl and uh yeah so we're really really looking forward to that and i said you just you know you just pray for us and uh, that everything moves smoothly with the, uh, with the pregnancy. And uh, I think we're in the 14th week. Monday will be 14 weeks. And I'm looking forward to it, for sure. And what I'm not looking forward to, though, is the increased uh, chore load that comes with children, right? More cleaning, more, more cooking, more doing, more laundry, right? And uh, luckily for us, in our uh, apartment complex, we do have a, uh, a laundry unit, so that's very convenient for us. Um, and most of you probably have access or you have laundry units in your own homes as well. Uh, but in different parts of the world, right, believe it or not, even today, they're still using maybe washboards or buckets to, to clean their, their clothes. And that was more of a norm 50, 60, 70 years ago to use a washboard. But in biblical times, there were people called fullers, fullers who would be in charge of washing clothes, washing garments. Are you saying, okay, Gene, why are you rambling and talking about <laughs> laundry and washing clothes? So I promise you, though, that this uh, has, there's a reason behind it, and it will, I'll, I'll bring it up at the end of the sermon. But just, just, just remember that, right? Fullers washing clothes. Um, so now our text, last week it was Isaiah 6, and our text this week is Isaiah 7. Now it's the entire chapter of Isaiah 7, but it goes into the 10th verse also of Isaiah 8 because the story carries along into the 10th verse of Isaiah 8. 
So it's very long. It's about, uh, I think, 35 verses. So I'm not going to read it for you uh, just, uh, you know, save some time. But I will sum it up so we can all be on the same page so you can know what's happening. OK, so last week, uh, Pastor Caleb was talking about uh, Isaiah receiving a vision in the year that King Uzziah died. OK, now the person that's at the center of this is King Ahaz, who happens to be King Uzziah's grandson. He's a 20 year old king. Can you imagine being a 20 year old king? I can't even imagine being a 34 year old king, but he's a 20 year old king. Now, what, what we've seen so far in Isaiah is that there's good kings and there are bad kings, right? Unfortunately, King Ahaz is a bad king. Okay, he's, he's evil. He, he doesn't do well right in the sight of God. He doesn't seek after God. He doesn't look for him. He doesn't do things that please God at all. So much so that he sacrifices, he has sacrificed his children to pagan to a pagan God. Okay, so this is the person that we're dealing with. This is the person Isaiah is speaking to, King Ahaz. So let me just give you the brief overview that I, that I spoke of, okay? So now in verses uh, one and two, we see that Israel and Syria are joining forces to come against Judah, okay? In verses three to nine, uh, God speaks through Isaiah to Ahaz, and he says that, even though Syria and Israel are going to come together against you, uh, they won't be able to conquer Judah. And he tells him in verse four, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't worry to this evil king. In verses 15 through all the way through uh, verse 10 of chapter eight, uh, Isaiah gives Ahaz a completely different prophecy this time. He says, now uh, the Assyrians will come against you and they'll defeat you. So remember, at first we said the Syrians, Syria and Israel will come together. And this is the Assyrians. This is a different group of people. The Assyrians and the Syrians are two different people. So they're going to come against you and they will defeat you. Now, in the middle of both of these prophecies, and it seems like it kind of comes out of nowhere almost, in verse 14, Isaiah prophesies regarding the virgin birth of Jesus, seemingly out of nowhere. Okay, so within those three breakdowns, my, my points come from there, okay? So if you're a note-taking kind of person, these are the points, all right? God promises consolation, God promises condemnation, and God promises Christ. I'll say it one more time. God promises consolation, God promises condemnation, God promises Christ. So for the first point, God promises consolation. Or you could also look at that as, as comfort. He promises comfort. Now, in, in verse 2, it says, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, let's just point out one thing. It says that Syria is in league with Ephraim. So if you do decide to read this, uh, you will see Ephraim uh, within the scripture many times. Right. Ephraim is just another way of saying Israel. So Syria and Israel are together against Judah. And how, how does Ahaz 
and the, the, the people of Judah, how do they react? It says that they shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were afraid. They were deathly afraid. They were fearful. So how does now God come? How does he, uh, 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 how is he his consolation? How does he comfort him? He says this to him in verse seven. He says, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. What you've heard, Ahaz, it will not happen. It's, it's not going to come to pass. Even though they are conspiring to do this, it is not going to happen. Now, if God says something, then he's going to do that. That's what's going to happen. And we see this all over scripture with Noah, right? We see that Noah, God, God told him, you know what? The earth is, it's, it's, it's sin and it's evil um, before me. And I want to make an end of it. And I want to start, uh, I want to start fresh. I want to start anew. So I want you to build an ark. I'm going to save you and your family. And that is exactly what happened, right? With Job, uh, uh, Satan comes to, to, to God. He says, you know what? Job is a good servant, but I think he's really only that way because his life is good. So I think if you were to affect him a little bit, maybe he might change his mind. He might change his tune a little bit. Right. So God says, OK, you know what? I'll, I'll allow you to affect him, but spare his life. You want he's not going to die. So what do we read in Job? He loses his family. He loses his possessions. His friends forsake him. Everything happens to him, but he remains alive because if God says it, that's what he's going to do with Paul. Paul, God called Paul his chosen instrument, right? Paul, at one time in his life, he was crucifying Christians. He was murdering Christians. No one would ever think that this would be Paul's future. But God said, this is my chosen instrument. Christ met him on the D Damascus road and changed his life and changed his path forever. Because if God says it, that's what's going to happen. His word is sure. His word is sure. Why? Because he is sovereign. Right. And and we are in the midst right now of very scary and, and difficult times, as Pastor Caleb was uh, talking about earlier. And, and just like Judah was facing. Many of us are worried about our finances. We're worried about a job situation. We're worried about uh, health, the heightened racial uh, tension that's going on, our, our children, our marriage. But whatever you're facing right now, God is saying, I am sovereign. My word is good. My word is sure. You can bank on my promises. But why can we bank on God's promises? Because God's checks don't bounce. God's checks don't bounce. So nine times out of ten, we've all here dealt with checks in some kind of way. Right? I have a business, so I deal with checks all the time. Unfortunately, I have gotten some bad ones. Right? And a check is what? It's a, it's, a, it's a promise. It's an act of faith. When you receive a check from someone, that's an act of faith. It's saying, whatever is here, I'm telling you that this is what I have in my account. So now when you go to cash that or deposit it, that's what you're, you're going to receive what I'm saying that you'll receive. Right. But God's checks don't bounce. When he writes a check with his words, he fulfills that check. Right. When he said to Moses, I'm going to allow you to see the promised land, but you won't in enter in. God wrote that check with his with his words and Moses cashed it. He did not enter in. When. When uh, Jesus sat at the Last Supper and he said that one of you will betray me, he wrote 
that check with his words, Judas cashed that. His check didn't bounce. Because he is sovereign, right? And God's sovereignty is our consolation. It is our comfort. Now, now in verse 9, it says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Or in the NIV, like it says a little better, it says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Okay, so he's saying to Ahaz, look, I'm sovereign, so I, I, I want you to trust in what I say, but better yet, I want you to trust in me. And this will hold you up. This, your, your faith must be firm, right? And, and he's saying to Ahaz, look, he's trying to remind him that you are nothing without me. Apart from the Lord, Ahaz had nothing to stand on. He had an entire army. He had generals. He had sergeants. He had soldiers. He had servants. He had all of these things. He had a court. But all of that was nothing apart from having faith in the only one and true God. It meant nothing. And how is that a comfort to, to Ahaz? And how is that a comfort to us? It's because God's reminder to us to believe in him and in his word in difficult times. It takes our eyes off of us, off of our abilities and draws it back to him. Our only true consolation. So now even with all of this, Ahaz didn't change. He never changed at all. And instead of trusting in God, uh, Ahaz continued to be in rebellion against God. And so God is prophesying to him eventually that the Assyrians will take over Judah. But what does Ahaz do? Right. He sees Syria and Israel coming together. Right. To try and conquer Judah. So what does he do? He goes to the Assyrian king for help. Instead of trusting in God's word, instead of standing firm in that truth, he goes to the Assyrians to, to, to the Assyrian king for help. So now. Eventually, of course, the Assyrian king would betray him and they would defeat Judah and they would turn on him. And because of this, now God condemns Ahaz and Judah. Now, you don't see this actually play out in the book of Isaiah, but this is in Second uh, Chronicles 28, if you want to take a look at it. And this leads to our second point that God promises condemnation. Now, we're going to look at two things here. We're going to look at why is Judah condemned? Why is Judah condemned? And also how they're condemned. So why and how are they condemned? So firstly, why are they condemned? Now, um, if you do have your Bible or your Bible app, uh, read with me uh, in uh, Isaiah 7, 5 through 8. It was 5 through 8. It says this, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason and the son of Remaliah, verse seven, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. 
So I, I, I think you kind of get an understanding of what's happening here, but I, I want to kind of bring it down to a more familiar to uh, a, a place for us so that we can kind of understand this of what's happening here a little bit better. So uh, I believe that there are uh, modern day uh, prophets in the 97 in about 97 or so. Uh, there's a prophet by the name of Dallas Austin. OK, Dallas Austin, he came together with three prophetesses uh, by the names of uh, T-Boz, Left Eye and Chili. And they came together and they and they wrote a song called Waterfalls. Right. So now this song was a huge song. Don't go. Right. You remember that song, right? Huge song. But listen to the uh, lyrics of the chorus. I call it the hook. That's, that's what I say. I say the hook. Listen to the lyrics of the hook. It says this. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Please stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. I know that you're going to have it your way or nothing at all, but I think you're moving too fast. Essentially, that is what is being said right here. God is saying, I gave you the gently flowing rivers of the Shiloh in Judah. This is what I gave you. But he's using it as a metaphor and comparing the river in Judah to the great river, which was most likely the Tigris and the Euphrates in Assyria. And he's saying, I gave you this, but this wasn't enough. Right. So now you went out and you desired the great raging, roaring waters of the Tigris and Euphrates in another country. He's, he's trying to say you weren't content here with what I gave you. So you desired something else that I did not give. You desired what your eyes and what your heart and what your mind saw and you wanted that. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to because they're blessed. God's waters are blessed. It doesn't matter what's out there and what you see. God's waters are blessed and he wanted to to and, and, and he's condemning them because they are uh, their hearts have been led to worship the things of the world instead of him. And that's our point, that God condemns us when when uh, when discontent leads us to worship uh, of the things of the world instead of him. Now, how are they condemned? How are they? Condemned? That's why they were condemned. But how are they condemned? Now, when you look at when uh, Isaiah starts to prophesy about this condemnation, it's absolutely horrible. It talks about how God will bring people from Egypt and and from uh, Assyria and there'll be, you know, uh, uh, battles and it's going to be famine. And it's, 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 it sounds absolutely horrible. One thing that keeps showing up over and over again is the language of uh, briars and thorns. So I'll just choose one verse where that happens. And that's in uh, verse 23 of chapter seven. It says that in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. OK, so now in these places that used to have vegetation, have fruit, have signs of life, have greenery will now become a place of briars and thorns. A place of briars and thorns. Where do you remember that from in the curse in Genesis? Right. He said that the ground will now give you what? 
thorns and thistles and briars. That's a sign of a curse. That's that's not a good thing. And and what's happening here is that God is condemning the land with fruitlessness, fruitlessness, where there used to be life, where there used to be fruit, where there used to be greenery, where there used to be signs of life. There it is no more. It is fruitless. Now, what now what does John 15, 16 say about bearing fruit? It says that you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So part of our walk, our role as Christians is that we bear fruit. God saves us for this is one of the purposes he saves us for is to bear fruit. When you don't bear fruit. What do you have? What, what is there? So fruitlessness is a product of God's condemnation. Now, now, if you look at the rest of John 15, 16, it says this, whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, the person speaking here is Jesus. And, and now this leads us to our final point, which is God promises Christ. I remember I said just in the middle there of the the prophecy of consolation and then a prophecy of condemnation right in the middle there is a prophecy about the virgin birth of Jesus. And and that verse says this, it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Hmm. So that verse starts out with therefore. Now, you have to ask yourself, OK, it starts out with therefore. So what what's what's before the therefore? What what are they hinting at? What are they getting at? OK. Now, from the NIV, um, we'll start at verse 11 to just get an idea of what's happening here to get to the therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Now, remember, this is. Um, Isaiah speaking through I'm um, God speaking through Isaiah to Ahaz and he says this to him this is after he has given him consolation that Syria and Israel will not defeat Judah he said that I'm sovereign trust in me stand on that truth believe in me okay then he says ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights but Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? OK, so what's what's happening here? So now remember, this is after God has promised this to Ahaz. Right. Then he takes it a step further. First of all, God didn't God didn't have to come to Ahaz and reveal these things to him. That's a grace in itself. OK, he also didn't have to happen to prophesy that he wouldn't be defeated by Israel and and um, uh, Syria. Right. That that's another grace. But then to say, you know what, if you don't believe, if you still don't believe me, why don't you ask me for a sign? Anything from the highest heights, anything you could ask, ask me for a sign. I'll provide it so that you can believe me. Now, how does Ahaz respond to that? He says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Doesn't that sound humble? God, I don't want to bother you with that. I don't want to put you. I, 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 right. I don't want to do that. 
That sounds humble, but what it, that's, that's not what's happening here. If God asks you to for, you know, to, for a sign, you, you obey the master. You obey the Lord. What Ahaz is doing here is it's showing a, a lack of faith, actually. He's saying, I don't, I don't care for a sign. I don't care for a sign. I don't, I don't believe. I don't believe in you. I don't care for a sign. So then that's why when you hear the response, it makes sense. In verse 13, it says, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of God? Oh, it's, it's, not, it's not enough. These signs, me asking you for a sign, me, me coming to you and consoling you, comforting you. That's not enough. So then he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign now in keeping with knowing that I'm sovereign, that I hold these things together, that I am God. He says this, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's the first part. The promised son. The humanity of Jesus. Now, luckily, we don't we don't get to see the fulfillment of all of prophecies all the time. Right. In scripture, we see this happen in scripture in Matthew one. Now, in Matthew one, verses 18 and 25, it says this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We all don't know, know the story. Right. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make uh, to make Mary uh, to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Skip to 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Here it is. Conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So so now just as God's word came to pass regarding Syria and Israel, just as it came to pass regarding Assyria, God's word proved it was faithful again with the birth of Jesus. So now God promises Christ. And now we're going to look at the promised savior. So we see the birth being fulfilled, the, the humanity, Jesus actually being born taking on flesh, breathing air, walking and talking like we do. But if that's all Jesus was, that wouldn't have been enough. Amen. So the promised savior. So now in verse 14, the last part of it says, you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. But now how is that different than uh, how God was with the people in the Old Testament or even how he's with Ahaz, Isaiah and right there in, in this very context. How is that different? Isn't he kind of with them technically? Right. So the difference is that is that in the Old Testament that God, he spoke through prophets. Right. He inspired. He he 
he uh, his presence was in the temple. His his presence and he, and, he, and and his inspiration and, his, and he spoke through people. That was it. The difference uh, between that and, and Christ is that he actually came down. He became a a a person. He took on flesh. He tabernacled with us. He walked like us. He talked like he came into existence. That is the difference. Now, at the at the beginning of the sermon, I, I mentioned that in biblical times, a fuller was a person who washed dirty clothes. Do you remember that? OK, they washed dirty clothes. And I mentioned this because the physical location where Isaiah and Ahaz met during this whole thing here, during this whole uh, ordeal is on a road that is leading to a fuller's field. Now, we see this in uh, verse three of chapter seven, it says, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washers or fuller's field. OK. So, so what? Right. <laughs> what am I what am I getting at? So why, why is that important? Well, first of all, being that God. Uh, was so specific about the location, we can we can rest assured that this was an actual place. These are actual events with real people. OK, that's the first thing. Now, second of all, what is the upper pool and what is the washer's field? Now, the upper pool was also known as the king's pool. It was uh, situated in a higher place and it was it was it was lifted up. OK, and the washer's field is a place where the fullers would clean dirty laundry. They would clean dirty and stained garments. Now, isn't it interesting that God would lead Isaiah to this place? He's next to the king's pool, which is high and lifted up. And just ahead in the distance, dirty garments, filthy garments are being washed clean. This is where God chooses for the prophecy of Emmanuel to come. Could it be because Emmanuel would be a king and, and be high and lifted up? Could it be that Emmanuel would be like a fuller and wash our garments clean with his blood, our dirty, sin-stained garments? This is the same Jesus whom the angel spoke of in Matthew 1 saying, he will save his people from their sins. God promises consolation. He promises condemnation. And, and the promised Christ stands in the middle of these two things. Jesus will either be your consolation and comfort today, or you will stand condemned before him later. If you are not a believer, I want to ask you, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power. Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul cleansing power of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your blood. We thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for your resurrection. And we thank you that you've washed us clean. May we understand this truth. May we embrace this truth. May we walk in the light of this truth each and every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.